All right, if you can turn to Mark chapter 6. Immediately, this is after uh, having fed the 5,000 men and their, the women and children as well. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was waging against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let's pray. Glorious God and Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts in order that we might know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, it certainly has been a wild week, hasn't it? It's hard to, to fathom all of the changes that took place over the course of this week. It seemed like uh, almost every day something different was popping up and it was something major. All of this thanks to something we now know as COVID-19. Uh, we've seen the implementation of travel restrictions. And one of our neighbors happened to be in France at the time, so she was scrambling trying to get back. Uh, into the country before those uh, sanctions or restrictions rather were put into place. Um, cancellations as uh, the NBA fell first and the, then uh, finally hockey delay uh, of the beginning of the baseball season. A lot of things that usually distract us from the hard parts of life now erased for the time being. The, the ups and downs of the stock market uh, which, uh, if you're young, like me, don't seem to matter as much because uh, eventually it'll catch back up. But for some, it's very pertinent because that's, uh, those losses are in the present, not in the, possibly in the future, because they're retired, and that's what they're living on. Lots of crazy changes, unpredictability, things that perhaps you've worked your whole life for, uh, vanishing for... And before your very eyes. As we look at this text, um, I see some similarities of what's going on. Uh, these, these men are experiencing the frustration and the futility of existence. So, three questions. First question Why is life so futile, so frustrating? 
and so fleeting. This comes on the heels of what was a magnificent moment. Uh, Jesus uh, has just fed the equivalent of two Galilean cities with five loaves of bread and two fish. It's incomprehensible uh, that he, he was able to do this. And so this has just happened, and everything would seem to be great, wouldn't it? Well, Mark doesn't mention it, but in John 6, which also records this miracle, remember this is one that's recorded in all four Gospels, the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. In John 6, it notes that the people wanted to make Jesus king. And so uh, that is the reason why Jesus sends his disciples out. Immediately, Mark wants us to know, he made his disciples get into the boat to meet him on the other side. He sends his, his, he sends his disciples away, not just to any old place, but he sends them to Bethsaida. So if we look, look at our little map, <coughs> that we see where Bethsaida is. We don't know where they started off, but it was probably somewhere around uh, Gennesaret or Capernaum. And so it's not an incredibly long journey that they're taking to Bethsaida, but uh, Jesus says, I'll meet you there. Go on ahead of me i got some things i got to take care of uh, in order to do this. So, they leave early evening because Jesus has just fed uh, all of these thousands of people. It seems like an easy thing. They just have to cross a little bit of the sea, not, not the whole sea. But we know from uh, other experiences, like uh, the story when they crossed over to the Decapolis, uh, that sometimes things can get a little rough on that sea, particularly in the evening, and it did. They were making headway painfully. The idea here is that they were rowing strenuously. They're exerting tons of energy, and it's not getting them where they needed to go. Uh, they're expending all kinds of energy, and they're not getting close to Bethsaida. We see in this text that by the fourth watch, which is between 3 and 6 a in the morning, okay, stop for a second, they probably started... 7 or 8 o'clock at night, and now it's somewhere after 3 in the morning. They have been rowing for hours, and they still haven't gotten where they want to go, where they need to go, where they've been told to go. They're tired, they're frustrated, and the worst is probably coming out of their hearts. You might think that this is a fairly simple thing, but I remember uh, years and years ago, uh, the, the church where I went to, and I was a member uh, when I first became a Christian back in New Hampshire, every June we'd go on a church uh, camping trip before the rates went up. You know. And uh, this one year we had gone, and it was windy like you wouldn't believe. And I went out on the lake in a canoe by myself, no one wanted to go with me. I can't remember why I was by myself. Uh, but anyway, I was trying to get back, and I found it was so hard because this canoe had a high bow, and the wind kept taking it. And so no matter how hard I tried to, to steer a straight course back to shore, I found that I, I kept going off the course. I recorrect, back off course, recorrect, back off course, recorrect. That's what they're experiencing. The wind is catching the bow of the boat, and it keeps throwing them off course, and so they have to keep correcting. Some of these guys are seasoned sailors. They know what they're doing, and they're still not getting there, and it's not because some of them happen to be tax collectors. 
and not used to rowing a boat. Okay? They're working hard. They're trying to go in the right direction, and it's just not happening. And it's the wind. It's not incompetence. It's something beyond their control. The wind. We don't see it here, but if we pull back and look at the larger context of Scripture, we're reminded from places like Romans 8 that the creation is subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it and hoped that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We live between the time between um, it, the, the creation was subject to futility and the time in which it will be set free uh, <coughs> to the glory of the children of God. We live in the midst of the futility that has been brought about by the sin of Adam. And that's part of what they're experiencing. Uh, the wind, which was meant to help them in many ways, now is working against them as part of the futility of the creation. Paul Tripp notes that we live in a broke-down home due to Adam's sin. He, he pictures it as sort of like a place where you're never sure if the electricity is going to work because today it might work and tomorrow it might not work. Uh, you're not sure if the plumbing is going to properly function. You never know when the irrigation in the front yard is going to erupt into a geyser like it did yesterday. You just never know what's going to happen because we live in a broke-down world. And so we feel the thorns and the thistles, and they hurt. There's no exception to this because you're on a mission from Jesus. Okay, These men were on the boat because Jesus told them to be on the boat and to go to a particular place. Uh, There's the sense of mission, the command of Jesus does not exempt them from the realities of the wind and the frustration of not being able to get where they wanted to go. Obedience to Jesus does not provide us with an exemption from the hardness of life. And that's important for us to understand, particularly in days like today. We can sometimes think that because I follow Jesus, that life should be rosy. And, and there's a lot of false teachers that want you to think that. Think that usually you'll have an easy life now. And, and no, oftentimes we have a harder life. And we'll get to that a little bit more. Well, actually right now. The reality that sometimes Jesus wants us to struggle. Okay? He's wanting the disciples at this moment to struggle. Um, we'll see, there's a lot of reasons why he wants that. We don't like to hear that because we don't like to struggle. But the fact is, we need to struggle. I know baseball is canceled, is suspended right now. But one of the things that they talk about when they think about promoting players is whether they've struggled in the minor leagues yet. Because you don't want the major leagues to be the first place where they have a prolonged hitting slump or pitching slump. They have to, you want to see how they respond to adversity before you bring them to the big show. Jesus wants us to struggle. Not because he's sadistic, but because he loves us so. 
Because we need to struggle. We need to be humbled. We, we need to experience this futility. We need to see that we are not sufficient in and of ourselves for what He calls us to do. But here in this passage, we see that nature goes about its business. And when nature goes about its business, it can ruin or greatly inhibit our lives. And so as we, as we think about the present and we think about COVID-19, it's a virus. It's doing what viruses do. It's not malicious. It's not saying, I'm going to target certain people and make their lives miserable. It's just, it's a virus that looks for a new host so it can replicate and then reproduce. That's essentially what a virus does. And so that's all it's doing. Uh, but in the midst of that, while it's doing its little thing, now all of a sudden we find our lives are turned upside down by nature. Uh, we find we can't go to all the places we want to go. We can't do all the things that we want to do. And sometimes it's because it's despite the fact that we want to do them, someone else has decided we can't. And we struggle with all of these things. We want to go to work. But some people can't go to work because of what they experience. Are we having a, a battery issue? No? It's a natural thing. Okay, I'll, I'll just work with it. <laughs> and so what we see here in answer to our first question is that, that creation's groans create a difficult life. Not just because they're on the lake. That's for everybody. It really happened to them on the lake, but it also really happens to us in our circumstances. What is Jesus doing about this? Well, we see two ways in which Jesus responds to the difficulty that's being experienced by the twelve at this moment. The first is very ordinary, and then when we get to the second, we'll see that it's very extraordinary. But the first thing is he went up on the mountain to pray. Now, that's part of why he sent them away. He wanted time alone to pray. This is part of his ordinary practice. It's the second time in Mark's gospel that he mentions that Jesus kind of sneaks away in order to pray. Jesus wants to make sure that, uh, partially, to, that he's staying true to his mission. And that, that, that seems to be particularly in the first time Jesus goes away to pray. Okay? And it, and it seems even more pertinent in light of the fact that they wanted to make him king. He, he has to go back to the Father and he has to be reminded what the timetable is, so to speak. Now is not the time to be king. This is not the way to be king. But it's not just about that. We aren't told specifically about what he prays about, but we, we, we recognize his need for prayer as a human being. How much greater is our need for prayer as human beings? How, how frail we are. How finite is our strength? How limited is our wisdom? And so much more is our need for prayer. The prayer of Jesus here is, is stated as a fact, and it's for us to accept, but I want to remind us that Jesus loves his disciples. Jesus is aware of the realities of life in this fallen world. You'll notice it, it, in the text, it says that he saw they were making headway painfully before 
he goes out to walk on the sea. Jesus is aware of their circumstances as he's praying, I believe. This is what makes sense of the text for me. He knew they were experiencing affliction. He knew the temptations that would arise within their hearts because of that affliction. And Jesus was praying for them in their affliction. In the same way, the author of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost because He always lives to make intercession for them. That Jesus did not finish His work as high priest when He died upon the cross, but He continues it in heaven right now upon the throne of grace, interceding for His people because He knows their afflictions, He knows the temptations of their heart, and He delivers us by praying for us. Coming between us and those things. He fervently prays for His people. Just as He did here, He does now. And here's the good news. Remember, James 5 says the, the, prayer of a, the fervent prayer of a righteous man is a powerful and effective. Is there anyone more righteous than Jesus? In fact, is there anyone righteous besides Jesus? <laughs> no. The righteous one is seated next to the throne of the Father, making intercession on behalf of His people because He has shed His blood for them and He has been raised from the dead for them and He has ascended into heaven for them. So His prayer is effectual. He prays as a compassionate shepherd. He is praying for His sheep, the ones for whom He laid down His life. And so let's not listen to the lies of the enemy that want us to think that Jesus has forgotten us. That when life is difficult, God has abandoned us because we have the Word of God that reminds us repeatedly that He is with us. He prays for us. We are not alone. We are not forsaken. We are not forgotten. One of the memories I have of my early childhood is when we moved. We went from uh, Methuen, Massachusetts to Nashua, New Hampshire. And uh, my aunt and uncle and cousin lived like a mile away from the house that we were moving into. And you know, when you're three and a half, you don't quite understand everything. And so when my mom dropped me off at my cousin's house uh, so that I would not be in the way as they moved everything, everything into the house, I felt abandoned. And I remember kind of being at that, that big glass window, the big bay window in the front, and kind of, <laughs> My parents had gone to prepare a place for me, so to speak. And I was worried. And we can be worried because we do not physically see what God is doing. We don't understand what God is doing. And so we become overwhelmed with fear and we become overwhelmed with a sense of abandonment and, and we need to remind ourselves what he's actually doing. He's preparing a place for us and he's preparing us for the place. He goes so we can't see him 
to prepare a place for us. But he continues to also prepare us for that place. He prays that we are going to be conformed to the image, his image, through the difficulties that we experience. We see that in, that's one of the great promises in Romans 8. That God works all things together for good. And the good that He works them together for in verse 29 is that we would become conformed to the likeness of His Son. And so these hard things come so that we become more like Jesus. John Newton summarizes it this way, and you should have expected this. All shall work together for good. Everything is needful that He sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Ponder that. When you're in difficulty, when you're feeling the the pain of the thorns and the thistles, remember that those thorns and thistles are deemed as necessary by God for you. And when you're thinking about the things you wish you had that you don't have, you have to go back to this and say that that it is not needful for me to have that because if it was, God would have given it to me. And that requires humility. That requires trust. That requires love. And that's part of what Jesus is working to produce for his disciples as they strain at the oars on the lake and can't seem to get to Bethsaida. As we think about this pandemic, we have to keep that in mind too. We're not sure what we experience, but everything that we do is needful for us. And everything that he withholds is not. Jesus does not erase life's difficulties, but rather Jesus strengthens us in the midst of these difficulties. We see this in the life of Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, one of my increasingly favorite verses. Um, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul talks about, is talking about his thorn in the flesh that had been sent by God in order to humble Paul. And here's Paul. God, take it away. No. Take it away. No. Take it away. Is there something you want God to take away? I I know there's a bunch of you who do. And yet he says no. Why does he say no? Paul receives an answer. And his answer is for us. That's probably the only reason he received an answer. And so he could write it down so that when you and I have this thorn in the flesh that just won't go away, we have an answer. Let us listen to the answer. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. His power is not made perfect in your power. It is not made, his wisdom is not made perfect in your wisdom, but in your folly and foolishness. His righteousness is made perfect not in your perfect obedience, but his perfect obedience. 
It's about relying completely upon Jesus, not just for forgiveness, but for strength, for wisdom, for courage. My grace is sufficient for you. As we think about the COVID-19 impact that may or may not happen in our little parts of the world, as I've, as I've said before, we have to remember that what he's doing is reminding us that those things aren't needful. He is. Baseball, as much as I hate to say it, is not needful. But he is. My retirement, as much as I think it is needful, is not as needful as Jesus. My liberties, as much as I love them, are not as needful as Jesus. And so Jesus intercedes so difficulties restore us instead of breaking us. Third question is what, oh, I, I lied to you earlier. I didn't mean to. I misspoke earlier. There's four questions, not three. You get an extra point, bonus point, Teddy. Um, what extraordinary thing does Jesus do? He came to them walking on the sea. Jesus comes out to meet them upon the water. And Mark uh, makes clear to us in many ways that this is something that is miraculous. For instance, they all saw it. It was not one or two of them that had some sort of hallucination uh, because they were so tired and maybe hungry because they've, they've burned off their uh, um, bread and fish. Okay? Uh, it's, not, it's not the hallucination by a person, a waking dream from a person because it's three or four in the morning and they're really tired. They all saw it, okay? And they all saw someone, something, walking upon the water. Not walking on a sandbar or anything like that. Jesus was walking upon the water. Jesus, once again, is revealing his rule over creation. Just as he did moments, you know, a few hours earlier with the bread and the fish, just as he had done earlier when they had been on the sea before and were almost dead and he's sleeping. And they're, don't you care? We're going to die. This time they're not we're talking about dying, but maybe they were thinking about that. Um, maybe they were just thinking, well, are we ever going to get there? You know, like the little kid. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. We're there when we're there. What's hard here is that it says he meant to pass them by. Now, hang on for a sec. Reading that out of, out of a larger context means that we are tempted to think that Jesus was just going to walk on by. Sort of like, hope you guys enjoy the rest of your boat trip. <laughs> you know, I remember before there were cell phones. And sometimes you would see a car broken down on the side of the road, and you'd see a police car go right on by. And I feel bad for those per that person. The police officer may have had something else they had to do. I, I have no idea. But you feel that that, that person probably feels 
forgotten and forsaken at the moment. Jesus is not forgetting or, or forsaking the disciples. There's something much greater that's going on. And when we look at the language in Exodus 33 and 1 Kings 19, we see what's happening. Both of these take place on a mountain, the first with Moses and the second one with Elijah. And, and Moses says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will be proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. And then fast forwarding a little bit to verse 22. And while my glory passes by, I will put you on the cleft of a rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And if we go to... Uh, 1 Kings 19, we see Elijah's in a very similar situation uh, where he, like Moses, is upon a mountain. Uh, he, he's probably more distraught than Moses was, and yet it says, Go and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. This idea of passing by is the idea of a theophany. God is going to reveal something of his glory to both of these men. And so when Jesus is going to pass by the disciples, his intention is not to kind of pass them and go, enjoy that. He's going to reveal his glory. The God-man is going to reveal something more of who he is to them so that they will believe in Him. That's what's going on. Mark is specifically invoking this language of theophany, so these people will know what Jesus has in mind. And what He has in mind is that, as it says in Job 9, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? It's God alone. He's revealing that He is God alone as He tramples these particular waves. He's not hindered like they're hindered by the waves that have been stirred up by the winds. Jesus is not slowed down by the winds. Jesus keeps moving. He's revealing His glory as the Creator of the winds and the waves. Now, They didn't think it was Jesus initially. They didn't recognize Jesus initially. Remember, it's dark. They're probably, they're frustrated, they're tired, they're afraid, all of those reasons. I don't want to beat up on them. But they thought it was a ghost and cried out. They thought it was a phantasm, a specter, a phantom, whatever you want to call it. And they're scared. They're right with what they would, we would expect based on what we read in the Talmud. It talks about, um, Rabbah said, for instance, seafarers told me that the wave that sinks a ship appears with a white fringe of fire at its crest. And when stricken with clubs on which it is engraved, I am that I am, Yah, the Lord of the hosts. Amen, amen, Selah, it subsides. So what that means is they had a, super, a superstitious thought about the waves that would capsize a boat and sink it. They thought that it had this, uh, it, was, it was white with fire. But if you struck that wave with a club that had the name of the Lord on it, it would cease. That's what the Talmud was teaching. Okay. So 
here are the disciples out there and, and they're thinking that perhaps this is a phantom riding the waves that is going to destroy them when in fact Jesus is coming to save them. Isn't that appropriate? Don't we sometimes feel Jesus is coming to destroy us when in fact he's coming to save us? I have a child who's not here today. I can tell the story unless they listen like I told them to, unless they're listening. Um, they got a boil, and I didn't want the doctor to touch them. Well, first it was me. <laughs> first, Daddy, don't, don't touch this thing. I'm trying to, and I'm, I'm, my daughter's worried that I'm going to hurt her when I'm trying to help her and heal her. Yes, it will cause pain, but the intention of the heart was to get the poison out and bring relief. And when Jesus comes close, sometimes we think he's going to hurt us, but he's trying to help us and heal us. But sometimes that hurts. So Jesus speaks to them and he says, Take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. I don't like that translation. Because what does it mean to take heart? It means be courageous. Right? That speaks more clearly to the point, I think. Be courageous. It's me. Don't be afraid. Or simply, fear not. Jesus can cast out our fears when he reminds us that he's close and he's present. Jesus is speaking to his 12 disciples in this boat just as God spoke to Joshua after the death of Moses at the beginning of the conquest. They are like new Joshuas. They're going to be sent out into the world okay, when Jesus is ascended. They're going to lead the conquest. The new conquest. The greater conquest. And Jesus reminds them, be courageous. It's me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid when the waves and the wind are high. Don't be afraid when the soldiers come for you. Don't be afraid when the rabbis kick you out or the, the, the synagogues kick you out. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Be courageous. And it's after that that Jesus gets into the boat and the wave ceased. He continues to reveal more of his glory as Lord of heaven and earth. And so Jesus reveals his glory as Lord of creation. This sounds like a great end of the story, right? But the story doesn't end here. Uh, you know, in Matthew, it has, Mark, uh, it has Peter being impetuous, as Peter often is, and going out on, and wanting to go out there with him. But here, there's a different point that Mark wants us. That is prompted by the, was the danger averted? There's a warning in the midst of this because the disciples didn't understand about the loaves. They saw the miracle. They knew it. They, better than anyone else, knew exactly what happened, and yet they didn't understand about the loaves. 
They didn't connect all the dots. They didn't put it all together. What we see is, is that the storm, the wind, the waves, those are not their biggest problems. They're just the most obvious problems. And so the hardship that you see in your life, it's just your most obvious problem. It's not your real problem. So let's not think that it is. Let's not think, if only the wind would die down, everything would be okay. No, it wouldn't. If only I'd get this job promotion, everything would be okay. No, it wouldn't. It'd be different, but it wouldn't be okay. Why? Their hearts were hardened. They had a heart problem. And Jesus is, is coming to deal with the heart problem. And, and that's what, the way it is with us. Uh, these troubles only reveal the heart problem that Jesus is about to address. They were failing to trust in Jesus as He has been revealed to them thus far. Think about this for a moment. Think of all the people they've seen Jesus heal. All the people that they've seen Jesus um, cast demons out of. They've seen Jesus still storms. They've seen Jesus feed thousands upon thousands of people with scraps of food. Can't they trust Jesus? Not when your heart is hard. And when you don't believe what's been revealed to you, your heart gets harder. That's what we see in Pharaoh throughout the Exodus. Particularly we see in places like Exodus 8, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So this is what would happen. Bad plague. Pharaoh complains to Moses. Pharaoh, uh, Moses says, okay, I'll, I'll, t- I'll take care of this. I'll talk to God. We'll deal with it. And you're going to let the people go, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And as soon as the respite comes, Mo- uh, the Pharaoh goes, I'm not letting those people go. He was hardening his heart because he was not believing the truth that had been revealed to him. And so the disciples have not, are not believing the truth that's being revealed to them. We see similarly in Hebrews 3 and 4, three times it mentions, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That was the problem of these disciples. Their heart problem needed to be fixed before they could really be sent out to the world without coming back to Jesus. He's Lord of creation. And I want to remind you that COVID-19 is just as much a part of creation as the loaves and the wind. And as it comes, take precaution, yeah, it's wise. But will you trust Jesus with all of the complications that come with it? Following Jesus means that we continually are going to be challenged to trust Him instead of giving over to fear. There's, there's going to be a never-ending series of things for you to be afraid about. One of the reasons uh, that I'm not panicked about COVID-19 is, is this. I don't live in an ice age. When I was a kid, I was told I was going to grow up and there was going to be an ice age. 
Well, maybe 10,000 years from now there might be one. I don't know. The, kill, the, the African killer bees have not killed me. There's still an ozone layer. Okay. Well, we took some precautions. We changed a few things. And all of the dire predictions regarding to that one didn't happen. Okay. So this is not faith that doesn't act. Okay. But I've seen all of these things that were supposed to kill me and end civilization as we know it and haven't. And so I don't think this will, this will end civilization, but it might be painful. It might be really hard. And we might lose people we love. But that does not mean that Jesus is still not in control. Failing to trust hardens the hearts of disciples. Now, if we take these four threads and kind of weave them together, what we get is that Jesus intercedes and reveals His glory, so we'll trust in trouble. I'm sorry I went long today, but, but apparently we needed it because there's some, some big matzo ball hanging out there that we've got to deal with. I mean, we can't run and hide and pretend it doesn't exist. None of us knows what COVID-19 will bring to our doorsteps. Loved ones may get sick. They may even die. People will lose money, more money than they can afford. Weaknesses and idols are going to be revealed. Well, the disciples' hearts were revealed as they rode on the trip to nowhere. Jesus controls the wind and the viruses, but they always serve His good purposes in revealing His glory and furthering our salvation. See, that's hard news, but it's true news, and therefore it's good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us more of Jesus this morning as one who intercedes for his people, as one who walks upon the waters to get in a boat with them and still the storm. We thank you that he is, in fact, a compassionate shepherd. And so we don't need to fear the wind, and we don't need to fear the waves. We don't need to fear the virus. But Father, sometimes they really scare us. And so may your Spirit remind us of who Jesus is so that we can entrust ourselves to him as our faithful maker, our faithful redeemer, our faithful friend, prophet, priest, and king. That we will remember that he is our shelter, our refuge, the rock that can't be washed away, the one in whose hand we are, and he keeps us secure even when we're scared. Help us in this time of need. Amen.